Welcome back to Pinpoint History, everyone. Episode 27, Making Peace. Last time, Alexander set out into the Balkans at the head of a fully raised army. There was the young king's first campaign as a general. Alexander was able to overcome all those who opposed him, even managed to get out of a couple tight spots. After subjugating those who dared to raise in revolt, Alexander found out that despite pledging loyalty to him, Thebes and Athens had once again broken out in revolt, with Thebes killing the officers commanding the garrison in the city. I should clarify that these revolts occurred due to the rumors of Alexander's death, but that did not mean much to the young king. Alexander began marching his army south, ready to rumble. Meanwhile, in Athens, Demosthenes was preaching that Alexander had died, and even managed to find someone who was willing to be bandaged up and pretend that he had been at the battle which cost Alexander's life. Not only that, but there were whispers that Demosthenes had supplied Persian gold to spread around to the other Greek city-states, encouraging them to throw off the Macedonian yoke that was holding them down. This could be true, and it was in line with the Persian M.O., if Macedonia was busy dealing with problems on the home front, an invasion would hardly be likely, especially without the combined forces of the Greek world. In Thebes, exiled citizens who had been anti-Macedonian had been forced to leave the city after the Battle of Chaeronea. They returned to the city. In the ever-changing political winds of ancient Greece, this was to be expected. The dominance held by Philip was a rare phenomenon. And now, with Alexander quote-unquote dead, surely now Macedonia would finally be thrown into some internal chaos that they had expected upon Philip's death. As ever, the specter of Philip still hung over Alexander and Macedonia. But, after Alexander's retribution, all of Greece would come to see Alexander as his own man, perhaps even be frightened of him. With the political exiles now back in Thebes, they were allowed to speak in the assembly. It had only been a generation ago when Thebes had thrown off the Spartan yoke and broke the Spartan hegemony. Thebes then had her time in the sun, basking in their political and military dominance. Despite being defeated by Macedonia, Thebes was still a proud city and home to some of the best trained citizen soldiers. The pride of their past still remained. Like we saw with Athens and Macedonia, as Philip and Macedonia's star began to rise, the vestiges of pride can cloud the reality of a situation. As Athens was forced to humbly accept their position as inferior to Macedon, Thebes would have to go through a similar process, having their wings melted down like Icarus, flying too close to the sun, forced to fall back down and be reminded of your true position in the world. Alexander and the army marched south in a flurry, reaching Thebes in just under two weeks. Unlike Athens, Thebes had a garrison of Macedonian soldiers who were now blockading themselves in the academy of Thebes. The leader of Thebes refused to believe that it was Alexander who led the army. They still thought him dead, so they said it was Antipater who had come. And then, after finding out it was not Antipater, they said it was another man who had the same name as the deceased king, a different Alexander. 
It was only when the full brunt of the 30,000-strong army of Macedonia was outside the walls of Thebes that they finally admit to themselves and the inhabitants of the city that it was indeed Alexander, son of Philip, who had come to their city. Alexander had come with his 30,000 infantry and 3,000 cavalrymen, and allied contingents were joining up with him daily. Alexander's hope was to demonstrate overwhelming force to make Thebes capitulate. Alexander attempted to be magnanimous, offering a general pardon to all those in the cities if they gave up the key instigators of the rebellion now. Adrian Goldsworthy makes a good point about the mindset of the Thebans during this crucial moment. Athens had blamed Thebes for the defeat at Chaeronea, claiming it was due to the Theban commander Theagenes who led them to defeat. Thebes likely carried an opposite view. They had provided the bulk of the infantry forces, and it was an Athenian error that had led them to disaster that day, as the Athenian forces had allowed themselves to be drawn away from the line, allowing for Thebes to be surrounded on all sides. Thebes still viewed themselves as a formidable threat, and to their credit, they still were. Thebes decided to fight, and to bolster their forces, they freed many slaves and armed them. Then, to upset Alexander, they sent envoys demanding Antipater and Philosus, son of Parmenian, be given as hostages, and made a proclamation claiming that all of Greece should unite with Thebes and Persia to defeat Alexander, who they now claimed was a despot. To further make a point, a group of Thebans sallied out and killed some soldiers before riding back to safety. Thebes had decided it was time to make their gamble. The city of Thebes had strong defensive fortifications, but there were two factors against them when it came to the siege. The first was that the Macedonian army was very well equipped to deal with sieges. In fact, they probably were the best in all of Greece. Secondly, and more importantly, the inner citadel, the Cadmia, was held by the Macedonian garrison. The Thebans set up palisades against the walls to barricade the Macedonian garrison. Essentially, the Cadmium was a weak point the Macedonians could exploit. So by building the palisades and placing soldiers in there, the Thebans hoped to avoid the separate Macedonian forces joining together. Alexander was no slouch and moved his army in front of the wooden barricades, also placing his own men at the weak points, ready to pounce when the opportunity arose. The army engaged with the Theban defenders, and a hard fight began. As always, the Macedonian phalanx reigned supreme in this era, but the Thebans fought stubbornly, even pushing back the Macedonian force. Apparently, Perdiccas, one of the men who attended school with Alexander, commanded a portion of the phalanx who attacked the outer palisade without orders. They moved to a different section of the walls, broke through, and began to engage with the Theban defenders. And then, they were assisted by the garrison in the Cadmia. When Perdiccas's force broke through the wall, the Macedonian garrison broke out of the Cadmia citadel and attacked the defenders in the city. When this news reached the defenders facing the brunt of the Macedonian assault, they broke and began to flee. The main body of Alexander's forces began to push through the gate in front of them and it was not closed until a majority of Alexander's army had already entered the city. This was it for Thebes. 
The defenders fought valiantly and made a last stand, but they could not hold off forever. Organized combat gave way to brutal street fighting, and the soldiers began to sack the city. The sacking of the city was especially vicious, and a lot of blame is placed on the Boeotian allies that aided Alexander, seeing their chance to take revenge against Thebes for the centuries of domination. Among the allies who saw their chance for vengeance was the Phokians, who 20 years ago had been in the decade-long sacred war. The Thespians and Plataeans also took the opportunity to knock Thebes down several pegs. In a single day, over 6,000 citizens of Thebes died, and soldiers, many of them innocents, killed in the frenzy. The survivors of the sacking had little to look forward to, as even though they were alive, majority of the population, some 30,000 people, were sold into slavery, and the city of Thebes itself was razed and demolished. An interesting anecdotal story that comes to us from Plutarch is about a noble lady named Timoclea. During the sack of the city, some of Alexander's Thracian troops broke into her home and began to plunder her house for valuables. As she was of noble birth, she was very wealthy, and they found plenty. Any trigger warning for people who may be uncomfortable with sexual assault? The leader of the Thracian group raped Timoclea and then demanded she give up her secret stash of valuables. She led the Thracian into her garden and told him to look into the well, and he would find it. When he leaned over to take a look, she pushed him in and stoned him to death. The rest of the Thracians bound her and brought her to Alexander. When she was brought before the king, he asked who she was, and she answered, saying she was Timoclea, the sister of Theagenes, the Theban commander who had died at the Battle of Chaeronea. Alexander was impressed by her and allowed her and her children to go free probably thinking he had done enough to her by virtue of her brother dying in a war against him and now destroying her home and city. I find this story interesting because they claim the barbarous acts were done by Thracians, and it's a clever little bit of a sly to put this in, because the unforgivable acts are done by barbarian soldiers, and then she's freed by the noble, enlightened Alexander, paragon of Greek virtue. It could be true that the Thracians attacked Timoclea, but I have my suspicions otherwise. Aside from Timoclea and her family, the pro-Macedonian faction was allowed to leave the city, and the priest could leave, probably atoning for his actions against the oracle, and the poet descendants Pindar. Later in Alexander's life, he would regret the harsh justice he dispensed to the Thebans. The city of Thebes was well-respected, and one of the great powers of its era. The destruction of Thebes sent alarm bells ringing across all of Greece. The message was clear. If I could do this to Thebes, I'm willing to do it to any of you. Alexander then set his sights on Athens, the citizens who were probably crapping themselves in fear. Unlike that he had done with Thebes, Alexander took a page from his father's book and treated Athens leniently, much to everyone's relief. Phocion came from Athens to meet with the king and plead for clemency, and he was able to convince Alexander to leave the anti-Macedonian faction alive in the city, not to sell any Athenians into slavery, and crazily enough, 
he was able to get forgiveness for Demosthenes. That man has nine lives like a cat. He's a consummate survivor, that is for sure. Athens had been open in its support for Thebes, and they had provided Thebes with weaponry, but that was the extent of their involvement, and Alexander was willing to let Thebes stand as the example. The destruction of Thebes is a seminal moment in the history of ancient Greece. The city was refounded in 315 BC, but it would never again regain the former luster and prestige it once occupied in the classical age of Greece. I'm left to wonder how Philip would have handled this had he been in this position. The absence of Philip and the supposed death of Alexander had emboldened Thebes and Athens to act against Macedonia. In the end, I think Philip would have been forced to make an example of Thebes as well. Alexander had offered mercy to the city before he was forced to commit the siege. Once they had rejected his offer and mocked Alexander, it was over for the city. Forcing an enemy army into a siege typically results in the city being sacked when they break inside the city, which is why it was necessary to surrender before the siege began. Philip had sieged and sacked the city of Olympus back in 348 BC and had sold the citizens into slavery as well. It was just the way things went back in the day. 335 BC was a busy year all in all for Alexander. The young king had marched north into the Balkans to deal with the rebellious tribes of Thrace and Illyria, and now marched south to deal with Greece proper. Alexander had now finally secured his position in the Balkans and in Greece, and the city of Thebes now lay in ruin, a testament to the wrath of Alexander. Now, at last, the dream of a Persian invasion could be realized. In the following year, Alexander would cross the Hellespont at the head of a large army to begin the conquest of Persia in earnest. We'll leave it here for now, with the home front finally pacified, and Alexander getting ready to cross over from Macedonia to Asia, to begin a series of conquests that changed the known world. I know this episode was shorter than usual, but I felt like the pacing of the episode would suffer if I tried to bring more into the episode now. Future episodes should be longer now that we're dealing with Alexander, and now that we have the well of sources detailing his reign, unlike with Philip. So I'll see you next week for the beginning of Alexander's Persian campaign, and I'll end it here with my usual sign-off. I have maps on Instagram, so you can see that at pinpoint underscore history you can email me at thepinpointhistory at gmail.com with any questions you may have. Follow me on Twitter at History Pinpoint, and you can find me on Facebook. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, let's get it. <laughs>